T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. It is uh, 8.09 and 50 degrees in the Twin Cities. Time now for one of my favorite guests, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. How are you? I'm doing very well. How about you? I am doing very well. I, I explained a saga. I don't know if you know about it, but I had a car stolen. Uh, actually, it was a car that I was driving, my father-in-law's car. Uh, it was stolen on Thursday night from a downtown Minneapolis parking ramp. And on my way here, I saw it parked in another parking lot. You did? Yes. So I've got the car back. Oh my God! That what a freaky coincidence! It's a, a very freaky. It's a very freaky coincidence, and I was just so startled by it. And um, we were able to get it back. Now we're trying to figure out if they still have a key. It's 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 been kind of crazy, mm-hmm. but uh, craziness continues in the world of politics as well. I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna make a transition and say before that and say um, that all the zombies are downtown. Well, the zombies actually. I owe I owe the recovery to the zombies because. The zombies have taken over the whole, what is that, the west area of downtown? It's kind of by the, all the, a lot of streets are blocked off. Hennepin right. and First Avenue, right. yeah, I probably mean, down by Target Center, Target right. Field. All of that area is actually blocked off, and that's normally the way I would come to work. But instead, I came the other way, which is longer. Mm-hmm. There was still a lot of traffic by WCCO television. Sure. And so that's when I came down Marquette, and I saw the car, and I said, God, that looks like it. And I went into this parking lot. It's the parking lot that has all the musical notes on, on one side of it. It's kind I of a... exactly where you are. And, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, there's the car. Wow. So I just... Uh, anyway, and I, again, I want to thank Eric Nelson for uh, sitting here, <laughs> sitting while I waited for the police. And finally, I, finally we, we got it back. So it's, it's, it's a happy ending. <laughs> so, thank, so we thank the zombies for this. We thank the zombies for this, yes. If, if it hadn't been for the zombies... I would not have driven that way. There's no question about it. I would not have driven that way. Is the car in okay shape? It is, yes. Apparently, it's fine. Wow. So, yeah, it's just I I would love to know what what the heck it's been doing for the past 48 hours, but I don't know. One of my friends would say, this is your lucky day. You need to go to Vegas and put some some money down on some number at this point. I'm just relieved. (laughs) I don't know if I can... um, I, you know, I, I guess it's my lucky day. That's, I guess, one way to look at it. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, listen, I want to ask you, um, you have a very interesting blog, and I, I don't plug your blog enough here when I talk to you. It's Schultz's Take uh, that you posted today, Governing by Executive Order, As Obama Goes, So Goes Trump. Uh, can you just kind of share your, what you're saying here in this blog? Well, this- sort of two arguments I make here. One of them is just to look at how many executive orders um, um, Barack Obama issued by this time compared to um, Trump at this point, because you might recall that Donald Trump was hugely critical, as well as Republicans were critical of Barack Obama and saying all he's doing is issuing lots of executive orders, he's trying to bypass us, and so they were criticizing when Trump was doing that. So that's the first part. And then the second part is to really sort of talk about um, the fact that one of the legacies that I think Obama leaves to Donald Trump 
is a weakened presidency when it comes to executive orders because Republican attorney generals challenged so many of those Obama um, executive orders, especially in his late in the second term, um, and Obama lost many of those cases, um, that they create the precedent now for what? Attorney generals such as Lori Swanson to now sue Donald Trump um, for um, basically um, misuse or, or I'd say misuse is the word, of, of executive orders. But let me start with the first one, is that um, according to CNN, which is also based upon um, official information you can get from the, the Federal Register, so this is not just CNN making up stuff. You can actually go and find this information yourself. By yesterday, you know, in the, you know, by roughly October 13th in Obama's first year, he had issued 26 executive orders. Um, so in his first, what, for our, almost his first, what, nine months or the first 10 months, um, Obama, going back, had the fewest number of executive orders of any president during that time period, taking us back to Eisenhower. Um, con- conversely, by yesterday, Donald Trump um, had issued almost 50 executive orders, almost as twice as many as Barack Obama, and he's on pace of using executive orders more than any other president since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Wow. Okay. Uh, one of the things, though, that that he and he, he has certainly criticized the president yes. for, for using those, or for, I'm sorry, President Trump or candidate Trump right. certainly criticized President Obama for doing that. He did. He said that you know. That, that Obama was trying to do an end run around Congress. He was citing that as what failures of leadership, inability to work in a bipartisan fashion. He had lots of criticisms of them. And now, and this is part of sort of the irony of the title here, what, what's happening? Trump is doing the exact same thing, finding that he can't work with his own Congress. Um, and I mean his own and Congress. And this is his own party. His own party, exactly. Um, he's resorting to what? He's resorting to using executive orders, as, again, as an end run. Keep in mind, again, by the way, Obama in his first year also had um, um, had a Democratic Congress, House and Senate. So the parallel is actually pretty strong. Democratic President, Democratic House and Senate. Now we have Republican President, Republican House and Senate. Um, and in part, Obama didn't have to use the executive orders because of what? He actually was able to work with his own party to get some legislation passed. Here, Trump is unable to work with his own party um, to be able to get things passed, such as the repeal of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, um, and, if, and other things that he's wanted to work on. So I think the parallel is just fascinating in terms of looking at it just as a, a way of seeing how, again, Trump, who, again, was so critical of Obama with executive orders, and in some cases, I think rightly so, and the courts agreed, um, is now going the exact same route, and in fact, much, much more aggressively. And like I said, the comparison here, Obama, the fewest since Eisenhower, with the case of Trump, on pace to equal um, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Wow. All right. And it certainly, uh, <laughs> that, that, that really would be remarkable. Listen, I, we do have to take a quick break. One of the things I, I want to ask you, though, about is the impact of his executive orders or and what he's also talking about you know, saying that he's going to do in terms of executive orders uh, for um, in his effort to like repeal and replace Obamacare because he couldn't get it through the Congress and the impact and and what kind of impact that's going to have. So keep it here. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Uh, Esme Murphy and Professor David Schultz. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. All right, Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz. Uh, he has a blog 
uh, that talks about just posted today, Schultz's take governing by executive order as Obama goes, so goes Trump. Your point may, that you're making is is that Trump, like President Obama, resorting to actually very early on in his presidency, the use of executive orders. What about what he, the substance of what he's talking about in terms of the Affordable Care Act and what it's going to do both to marketplaces, to um, you know, insurance rates, to you know, states like uh, Minnesota that expanded Medicaid. It sounds like, by every analysis I've read, that it's going to be – it could be chaotic. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's devastating. And, and first off, I should mention, before I even get to that, that it's not clear Trump has the authority to do this by executive order. Is that a lot of the things he's trying to do here in terms of allowing for, um, let's say, you know, new health care plans that don't meet the minimum requirements that we find currently being imposed and removing the, the subsidies for low-income people, it is not clear that by executive order he can do that because some of that is statutorily mandated. And so partly I think the reasons why Attorney General Lori Swanson and others are challenging it is that he just may not have that authority um, through, exec- through executive orders to do those kind of things. And that's going to be an interesting battle to look at. But assuming um, he, he is successful, and I would even argue, even if he's unsuccessful, um, his executive orders um, are, are potentially very devastating. Also keep in mind, these executive orders don't take place right away. Um, it's, it's going to still take time, even if he's successful, for all these things to happen. But, for example, let's start with the one that allows for um, new health care plans to be to issued that don't meet the minimums. Um, uh, many people have said that what we could see with that um, are health care plans that will be both potentially very expensive um, and also provide very, very little coverage. And that sort of puts us back to where we were before the Affordable Care Act, where some people would pay um, um, very high premiums um, with very high deductibles um, to get essentially no coverage short of you know the most catastrophic things. So that's one possibility. Um, another possibility is that for the millions of people who, who are able to afford health care insurance, you know, purchasing it through the exchanges or, or, or are acquiring on their own, um, they were and, and couldn't afford the premiums. Those subsidies really made it affordable for them. And a lot of those people, by the way, are people who probably voted for, for Trump. Um, and the combination of those two different things in terms of those alternative plans and getting rid of the subsidies might very well mean that lots of insurance companies exit from the market because they no longer will find it um, profitable to be able to sell insurance. Um, It also could very well mean that for many people who are not getting the subsidies, um, it's going going to shift premium costs onto those um, who can actually afford it. Because remember, at the end of the day, what Trump's not doing is repealing the basic law, which still requires everybody to what? Have, have, have health insurance. And so another possibility is, is those people who can't afford, their rates go up partially. People who, who, can, who, who are otherwise insured are going to see higher rates. And so this is going to have a devastating potential impact across lots of different markets in terms of health care insurance. And we're only beginning to sort of figure out from an actuarial point of view the implications of what they might mean. Right. And, and so you're saying that, that it's, it's not clear legally in terms of executive – but every time President Obama you know, put out an executive order, Republicans – said just that, 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 you know, he doesn't have the authority to do this. But you actually think that, that what he's trying to do 
and these lawsuits that are being filed that, that they actually could block this? Is is that right? Potentially, potentially, because sort of we'll, do, we'll sort of do con law 101 here. You know, the, the way a bill becomes a law is, of course, the normal way we think about it. Both houses of Congress adopt it, and then the president signs it, becomes law. Presidents um, um, can't can't um, use executive orders as a rule to change statutory law, you know, laws passed by Congress, um, unless they are somehow given authority to do so by Congress. And it's just not clear here that that the president has that authority to be able to do that with an executive order. And so that's where I think where the challenge is going to come in here, is that you're going to see Many attorney generals um, um, argue that that the provisions that he wants to change um, either are statutorily mandated and therefore and, and there's no authority given to him by Congress to make use executive orders to change them, or B, he's using his, his executive orders in such a way that it will fundamentally undermine the basic premises of the law. Now. Areas where Obama had lost on executive orders included both when he tried to several years ago when Congress was refusing to make um, any changes in immigration law. He unilaterally tried to make some changes using executive order, and the courts came back and said, no, you can't do that because uh, you're basically abusing your discretion, and your discretion goes beyond what federal immigration law allows. And the same thing when Obama tried to impose through executive order new rules for, I think, for, for coal-fired plants, um, the courts came back and said, that's beyond your authority to do so. And so it's not far-fetched for me to make the argument here to say that, that those, those two cases alone drew, created precedents to narrow the scope of power for presidents to use executive orders. And it will be those kind of cases that will be used by, again, by Laurie Swanson and others to challenge what Donald Trump is doing with these executive orders for the Affordable Care Act. Okay, it's also not clear that he's got Republicans on his side on this one. Correct. At all. I mean, I because mean, you're talking about ending subsidies. Right. And it, it's awfully tough to undo an entitlement that people have been... Enjoying exactly, and I actually saw some polling data today already that is suggesting that um, that the public says that Trump will own this decision as well as the Republicans will own this decision um, if if he were if, if he were successful in being able to do that. And I mention that because again, we're looking at lots of places. For example, like in Appalachia, which for example overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump, and in lots of rural areas, which were Trump areas, they are some of the biggest recipients of those subsidies to really sort of offset some of the costs. Think about, for example, what happened earlier this year in Minnesota, because last year one of the big issues that, that Governor Dayton talked about when he said the Affordable Care Act wasn't affordable were those many individuals, especially in rural Minnesota, um, who could not afford to pay the premiums, which were going up pretty dramatically. Um, Republicans um, basically came up with a fix. You know, what Trump is doing now will basically undo that fix. And in those areas of the state of Minnesota, which we're seeing those very, very um, significant increases in premiums, will yet again see them. And those tend to be what? The Republican voting areas in the state. So it's going to be interesting because these are the people who might very well be hurt the hardest um, are the people who are 
um, um, with, within Republican constituencies, and therefore we are seeing some members of Congress saying that no, we just can't sort of um, you know pull the rug out from all these people, and we'd be better off doing something else. Now, will this push Republicans and Democrats to work together on some kind of a compromise piece of legislation? I'm not sure, um, but clearly we're we're seeing uh, a united Democratic front and a let us say a a fractured, not united Republican front on this issue. And one of the things, though, one analysis is that what Trump, the president, is is doing is basically with this kind of threat will result in Congress actually coming up with a fix. I mean, is that possible? <laughs> Is, is that possibly the strategy? I mean, it's hard to believe that that would, would work. Well, well, first off, I'm not sure if, if Trump's thinking that far ahead on this one, you know, is that sometimes we're all trying to sort of discern um, a, a logic, you know, out of, out, of, out of moves that the President Trump is making. I'm not sure that that would be fit the case here. I think this is, again, a combination of, of him still wanting to appeal to his base that said, and he said to them, I, you know, I'm going to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, and B, I think this is in part sort of Trump um, being Trump in terms of just sort of reacting um, and, and without, I think, a grander strategy. Uh, if this were basically the idea of saying that, that you're, I'm going to do, the, I'm going to basically undermine the Affordable Care Act unless you folks um, get your act together in Congress to do something, um, I, would be, uh, I would be surprised if it was that thought thought well or well thought out as a strategy. Okay, because it's, I mean, that, that's what some people are saying. And the, you know, it must be, you know, I'm actually uh, moderating a, a discussion um, later this week about, um, you know, pol- how, how, how the current administration is affecting policy at the state and local level. I, you know, in some ways, there's so much uncertainty it, and confusion over, over, you know, the DACA situation is also up in the air. This, I mean, how do you even begin to make a plan or, or a budget at the state and local level when there are these kinds of mammoth questions out there? Well, you can't. And that's, and that's one of the difficulties here is that, uh, you know, that, again, in many ways what Trump is doing here in Minnesota is upsetting a plan. I'm just going to bring it back to earlier this year, upsetting a plan that the Republican legislature came up with. And so... You know, we're, we're looking at Republican legislators in the state saying that, you know, we actually got a fix to sort of help our constituents um, address, you know, skyrocketing premiums, and he's undermining that. But you're right. I mean, it's sort of the, the, the classic problem here. Not only is it a difficulty for, for legislatures to plan, not knowing where he's going to go, but bringing us back to the insurance companies and businesses, one of the things that businesses and insurance companies most want is stability. You know, tell us what the rule is, how to play the game, and we can go from there. And with this incredible amount of instability here, um, it's even if he did have a divine strategy or a larger strategy of saying this is a way to bring the Democrats and Republicans together, this type of approach creates so much uncertainty in the insurance markets um, that it does far more damage um, um, down the line um, as a way of trying to get people to work together. And it just wouldn't make sense as a strategy if it really was a strategy. All right. Chatting with Professor David Schultz. I am overdue here for a break. And then we've got to give you some weather. And then we will have more with David Schultz. Keep it right here. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It's 8.36 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz. Uh, we were just chatting a little bit in the break about there was a lot that happened this week. 
with the president, uh, notably the Iran deal, which is also sort of confusing. It seems like he's having it both ways, which I wonder how that's going to play to his base. And then also the situation with NAFTA. Your thoughts on both those issues? Well, start with the Iran one. Is that, he, again, this is something else that he was very critical of in terms of the Obama administration, arguing that it was one of the worst deals ever. I can't remember if he, that was the worst deal ever or if NAFTA was the worst deal ever. But in either case, he's described both of them as horrible um, and has wanted to um, basically pull out of the deal with Iran. Well, what he decided to do was to decertify in terms of saying he doesn't think that Iran is um, complying with the agreements um, that were outlined in the Iran nuclear deal. But at the same time, he wasn't willing to go quite as far as to basically break off the agreement. And that leaves it sort of in limbo what it means. And I think part of why he can't completely re, um, sort of you know, break the agreement is the fact that it would be a unilateral move, and many other countries in the world reached an agreement with, with Iran on this. And so even if the United States were to say, we're tearing up the agreement, many other countries you know, still are adhering to it with Iran. And again, it's another one of those situations. It's not clear what it would actually mean if, if the United States completely pulled out of the agreement, because does that mean now it allows for Iran to, um, ex- you know, to basically reactivate its nuclear program? I still think the exact same problem is here now. We don't know what what this decertifying means. What is you know, and, and that's you know, I guess it, it, you know, just what we were talking about before the break too. You know, on these, some of these major, major domestic issues, it, it's. I mean, what does that do? I mean, you travel all over the world. You know, you visit countries. I mean, what does that kind of position on such something so important mean for our allies? When they're trying to figure out where the U.S. really stands, well, that is part of the problem. I was going to say is when I, you know, when I have been overseas and I talk to sort of you know pub, other other academics or uh, our officials over there, you know, they are you know they are completely perplexed in terms of you know they're they're looking for us for guidance, looking to us for direction for leadership, and they're not seeing it, or they're hoping that we're going to uh, you know work together on some issues. They're not seeing that, and so they're they're completely confused. And I could bring this back to NAFTA now. Now, also, is that it wasn't a big story in the United States this week, but Prime Minister Justin Trudeau came to the United States this week, met with you know with President Trump. Well, they're very concerned about NAFTA in terms of the fact that it's a it's a very big deal in Canada. Again, it didn't get a lot of coverage here, but Trump is making real significant noise about about wanting to pull out and basically you know tear up the NAFTA agreement. Well, if he were to do so. That also leaves a lot of businesses, a lot of industries uncertain what it means. Um, it is perplexing to Canada and Mexico exactly what it means also to do that. And so this week, you know, he took he took a lot of action on lots of fronts, um, partly because he's been unable to sort of move on his agenda legislatively, but in terms of what he's been doing and saying. It's it's not clear what it really means. Again, not clear if he can really do this. The potential implications for the business community, as well as let's say for many of his supporters, are up in air. And again, some of our our closest allies, Canada, uh, Mexico. Um, you know, when we look at the Iran nuclear deal, we have Great Britain, we have France, we have many uh, many other countries who are involved in it um, in supporting these trees. It's we're left in limbo, and that's the worst part about it, is that just completely left in limbo regarding what all this means, and he's just throwing 
more and more uncertainty into, let us say, the political process, which is not what you want internationally. You want to create stability so that you have, again, you have regularity and predictability for relationships among countries. And, um, you know, all of that uncertainty, um, you know, just seems to be layering on uh, at, you know, time after time. Another thing, too, is the very public battles with with members of his own party. Um, This Twitter battle back and forth with uh, somebody who was definitely in his camp, Senator Corker from Tennessee, also sort of extraordinary. It is. And it's just a continuation of, of just, you know, just think about the main battles he's had. You know, he's gone to war with Paul Ryan, um, Speaker of the House, with Mitch McConnell, Majority Leader in the Senate. Earlier it was with Jeff Sessions as Attorney General. Now recently it is with, his, with Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, including this, you know, I, I can't think of any other words, but calling it almost a, a juvenile sort of, you know, Bat back and forth about taking IQ tests and stuff like that. And now we have Bob Corker. He seems to be thriving on fighting with absolutely everybody, including the people who I think initially all wanted him to succeed and all wanted to be able to work with him. And there is this capacity that he has to alienate those who are closest to him. And at the flip side, it also puts people like Ryan, like McConnell, and those at like those people in an uncomfortable situation because they're not completely sure what to do. If they were to come out and completely you know, denounce him, um, it is putting them in a precarious situation with the Republican base. It is not a surprise that the person who is most vocal in criticizing him right now, Corker, a senator, Republican senator, is not running for re-election next year and sort of feels, I guess, what liberated to be able to speak his mind. And many people are saying, um, if you like read the New York Times, Washington Post, others, that there are many other Republicans who want to say what Corker's saying but really feel like they can't do it. You know, I, I did look tonight because I knew we'd be kind of talking, obviously, about the president. I did look um, at the um, his approval ratings, which right now, if you take all of the different polls and they're, you know, the aggregate of all these polls is that he's sitting at about a 38 percent approval rating. The disapproval rating is, I think, in, well, in excess of 56 percent. It's really not that far, and that's pretty high for not approval, but – it it's down from f- the high of 44 when he first took office. So right. it doesn't look like it's eroded his base that much at, yet. Yet. Um, but it, with all of this sort of equivocation and uncertainty on uh, everything from NAFTA, which he ran against, uh, the Iran deal, and, and sort of playing it both ways, I mean, is this going to be enough for his base? It's... I mean, he, well, it's a good question here. First off, I don't think his base abandons him. I think his, whatever his base is, whether it's like, you know, 35, 36, 30, I'm not sure what the real, real core Trump base is. I think it will take a lot um, for them, for that to, for them to abandon him. I think the issue is, is not so much the base, it is those swing voters, because Trump, like any successful candidate, wins office with a combination of base plus swing. And really the issue is at this point, has he lost those swing voters um, in such a way that if the Democrats were to come up with um, viable sort of candidates, viable messages and so forth, you know, can they pick up 
let's say, next year, the requisite number of Senate seats they need to be able to take control of the Senate. So that's where I think the real damage is. I was talking to somebody, and it's actually interesting. I just, I'm back today, because actually for two days, Thursday and Friday, I was actually in Washington, D.C. at a conference. Um, and so talking to some people there, and a lot of the people I was talking to there said that, that his base will probably vote for him even if they lose their health care coverage, because they're probably that loyal to him. And I think that's true. I think at the end really? of the day, they might. Right. Well, it is It is interesting. And, and then you do go back to the fact, his victory, really, while he did you know, pile it up in the Electoral College, I think, wasn't it 70,000 votes in three states? Actually, a little bit closer to 90,000, but yes. I mean, basically, you know, flip, you know Wisconsin, flip, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah, I think they, I think it came to like ninety thousand between the three of them. And actually, I'll even you know, not that I want need to plug a book of mine, but my I have, I have a, a new edition of my swing states book coming out next you know um, next year. And we'd actually argue, or I'm actually arguing that it's really down now to um, about eighteen counties, you know, within those within wow. about those states. And so we're looking at numbers that are are astronomically small. But but yeah, under a hundred thousand easily. Um, and had it got a different, and had had they shifted a different way. Or had Clinton been able to get out an extra hundred thousand votes? She's president of the United in those, in those three states. She's president of the United States. Remember, of course, also she did win what the popular vote by about, about two or three million votes or something. Right, like it's that. excess of two million votes. Two, but yeah, mm-hmm. so yeah. But the but the broader point here is that Trump was not a majority candidate to start with, um, and and he had enough votes um, of his base plus some swings to win. I think he's lost most of his swing. Um, now, whether or not, um, again, Democrats can pick those up next year um, is, yet to be, is yet to be determined. All right. Uh, chatting here with David Schultz. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I, I want to ask him about um, the, the situation involving uh, Minnesota Supreme Court Justice David Strauss. Uh, Senator Al Franken indicated he was going to block that nomination to an appeals court. Uh, now the, those Senate rules may be changed because of this issue. This is a very important issue because as the courts go, the courts are our, our president's lasting legacy. And this is something that we really want to explore. And David Schultz, I am sure, will have some of the answers and analysis for us in just a bit. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It is uh, 8.49 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz, something that kind of got sort of put on the back burner. There's been so much news here, but I wanted to ask you exactly sort of what the rules are and what you think the implications are. David Strass is a conservative member of the uh, he's a Minnesota Supreme Court justice, and he was nominated to the Court of Appeals. I think it was was it the Eighth Circuit, Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which includes Minnesota all the way down to um, the, through Missouri. Right, and Senator Franken announced he was going to block the nomination, and this nomination is made by the president. How how does that work? And now it appears that maybe the pre, maybe Senator Franken won't be able to block it. Okay, there's there's an old practice. It's either called senatorial courtesy, or it's it's actually known as the blue slip process. That's I can't even tell you how old it is. This probably goes back to the 19th century, maybe even earlier than that. Where when a president nominates somebody to the federal bench, to the court of appeals, or the district court, um, the the senator from the state where 
that person is being nominated has the ability to essentially veto the nomination, to do a blue slip or, or to reject it. Phrased another way, um, that a vote on that confirmation of that person cannot go forward unless, uh, unless the both home state, se- home state senators agree to it. And if one says, no, I don't want to vote on it, block it. And Franken did that a few weeks ago and said that um, I don't believe that um, um, Justice Strauss, who's currently on the Minnesota Supreme Court, should be on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals and used his prerogative of senatorial courtesy to prevent that. Well, now there is talk in in the in the Senate of maybe abandoning that rule in terms of saying we're going to take that ability away from from senators to prevent um, from them being able to veto. And that will be significant if it happens, because we already know that earlier this year, the Senate basically got rid of the filibuster rule when it came to Supreme Court nominees. And now, if it were to to abandon the senatorial courtesy, it would just about prevent um, a minority party or a senator um, from being able to block any judicial nominees. And, and there is good and bad behind changing that rule. I mean, one can debate back and forth whether or not one person should be able to basically veto or prevent something from going to a vote versus whether this is a good way to ensure, um, you know, you know, consent of the senators, back and forth. But yes, this could be potentially significant in terms of not just for Strauss's nomination, but overall in terms of how federal court nominees um, are moved through the confirmation process. And is this all happening because of, of the Strauss situation? I think mostly yes at this point, because we're, as far as I know, there are no other um, nominees being blocked in the United States, you know, in the way that we're seeing this one being blocked. And you might recall that um, David Strauss um, was on, during Trump's presidential campaign, was listed as one of the persons that Trump would consider for what appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so I think for many conservatives and Republicans, they view this as a step, a step where Strauss goes from the Minnesota Supreme Court to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, and then perhaps eventually in a year or two or something like that, maybe up to the U.S. Supreme Court when there's another vacancy. So the stakes here are, I think, pretty significant, not just for Strauss, but I think just in general for the movement of of um, Trump getting his nominees to the federal bench, you know, onto the federal bench. All right. Um, well, that 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 explains it. Then, They're very interesting. We'll obviously have to watch for that development. I want to ask you, if by any chance, you saw uh, what I thought was one of the goofiest stories uh, of the week, and it had to do with the Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke and his flag. Have you yes. heard about this? Yes, I did. <laughs> All right, folks. I, and I talked about this a little bit yesterday. Um, the Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke apparently has his own flag, mm-hmm. and every time he is in, when he walks into the Interior Department offices or building in Washington, D.C., an employee goes and raises the Interior Secretary's flag to show he's in. If he leaves the building, the, the employee scuttles back and takes the flag down. Yes. What are your thoughts about this? Well, also, I think, is it, is it a bison that's on the flag, too, or something like uh, that? And, and no one can remember that. And then apparently, if if... Uh, Secretary Zinke is not in the building and his deputy secretary is, 
he's got a flag too. That's right. And the thing is, this this is doesn't you know this doesn't even happen at the White House. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean this is a strange story. I was going to say is that I, we're not supposed to treat our our government officials like royalty. Which is, and that's that's what happens with the Queen in England. Exactly. If she's if she's at a residence. If she's like at Buckingham Palace, then that the royal standard, I think it's what is called, is flown. Yes, exactly. Um. Yeah, yeah. No, no, this is when I heard that story at first. I thought this was a fake news story. You know, I first heard about it. I thought, okay, this can't be real or something like that. But it, but it is, and it's also creating a butt of all kinds of jokes at this point in terms of people saying, well, what would be a more appropriate animal to have on the flag? And so I, I don't know if you've seen any of that. So it's gone all over the place in terms of stories like that. But yes, no, it's just a very, very strange story. But it fits into these other stories about about some of the cabinet officials using private planes in terms of flying around the country and it's really sort of creating i think this um both sort of this 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 tin ear to public opinion this sense of entitlement that i think some people resent and just ov- overall just creating more background noise that makes it difficult for the trump administration to be able to move on and work on its agenda. Well, and that, that's a good point. I mean, and after all, because this is the president who was going to drain the swamp. Exactly. And this looks like the swamp being filled up and not being drained. Um, and so it doesn't look good. Now, I know we don't have very much time left. I sent you a text earlier today. Um, I don't normally do this, but I went and saw the movie today, Mark Felt. Have you heard about this? No, uh, you know, it, he, he's deep throat. He's deep throw, and it's 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 playing it's playing over at the Uptown, and it's and it's based upon um, basically his autobiography and his story about deep throw and about the Nixon administration, the FBI. Um, Liam Neeson, who's a, who's a really very good actor. Um, I love him. Yeah, and, and Diane Lane um, is in there also, and she's a wonderful actress. Um, if anybody wants to sort of go, go see a great film, um, it's it because the comparisons that people are going to draw between Mark Felt and Bob Mueller um, on the Trump administration are incredibly powerful. It's wow, really, okay. It's a really fascinating film to watch. All right. Well, I, I, that, that has me wanting to see it. Thank you so much, sir. No problem. Okay, take care. Right, bye. A movie review, too, from David Schultz, the Mark Felt movie. That sounds really good with Liam Neeson and Diane Lane. Very, very good. Got a bonus movie review there. All right, folks. Thank you to Jonathan Lowe. Thank you, um to the producer of this show, David Josephson, his first show, um, and a real shout-out to Eric Nelson for helping me out in a pinch. Uh, keep it here, folks. News Radio 830-WCCO. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.